0: Well, this is the year of our 50th anniversary as a church, and uh, we have a number of special guests who are going to be with us throughout the year, climaxing in the month of October. But uh, one of these guests, our first guest, is Paul Carter, who is standing off to my left-hand side. Paul is the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia. He's been a friend for many years, was with me in the early days when we started to form the Gospel Coalition here in our nation. Many of you are familiar with him because of the articles that he's written. Pastor Ken made reference to that. Uh, Articles that are available on the uh, Gospel Coalition Canada website. He's also the host and the Bible teacher of an interesting podcast called Into the Word, uh, which is actually reaching out to thousands of people, both in Canada and the United States. As I said, he serves on the Gospel Coalition Council with me, and it's been my joy to count on my friend for many years. As I said, he is from Aurelia, and so let's welcome him and also thank him for bringing all this snow from the north today. <laughs> <laughs> thank you,
1: I don't know if I'm responsible for that or not. Uh, my wife and I actually were just uh, away for our 25th anniversary, and uh, so we were somewhere sunny. And uh, coming back to this winter has been uh, a bit of a mental and spiritual shock. So uh, I have no idea what's happening out there. I don't know if I'm responsible for it or if this is just uh, the price you pay for having a 25th anniversary in the sun. I have no idea, but it was very unpleasant. Uh, But it is so good to be with you and good to see your faces. Uh, my, my wife apparently is related to a bunch of people who are here. My mother-in-law has given me a long list of people I'm supposed to connect with. I'm sure I won't know who you are, so if you know who I am or who my wife is, uh, after one of the services, I would love to connect with you and, and say good morning to you. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it up now to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13-16. to 16. As, uh, as you locate that passage in your Bible... I'm a big believer. I don't. I don't. The great thing about the dangerous and great thing about being a guest speaker is I don't. I don't know what you've already been told. I don't. I don't know what the culture is here. So I probably will say three or four different offensive and inappropriate, accidental things. Uh, but then I'm leaving, right? So what are you going to do? Anyway, one of the things I always said our people is uh, it's certainly not a sin to read your Bible on your phone, uh, but you will get a lot more out of most messages if you have a real paper Bible open in front of you because a lot of Uh, What we get out of a message has to do with what's in front of it and what's after it and all that is very hard to see in a phone. So if you have a Bible or if you have access to a Bible and you can open it to Matthew 5, 13 to 16, that would be wonderful. If you have a a Bible open in front of you, as you look at that passage, you're no doubt going to notice that we're kind of jumping into the Sermon on the Mount midstream. It's the second section in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to take a look at today. In his preface Uh, To his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, John Stott said this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount has a unique fascination. It seems to present the quintessence of the teaching of Jesus. It makes goodness attractive. It shames our shabby performance. It engenders dreams of a better world. Are you dreaming of a better world right about now? Are you dreaming of a better church? I know I am. The last two years have been hard on us, hard on us as a world, but I would also say hard on us as a church, haven't they? That It has felt very much like a time out, uh, things that are precious to us, things that are distinctive to us have been shut down or at least repressed and modified in distressing ways. It's been hard. But it has also been good can you say amen to that now why would we say that it's it's been good well first of all we we believe that it's been good because it passed through god's fingers on its way to us right god is sovereign so it's not like god was up in heaven going what in the world is going on down there this is god's will for us so it is good I think we can say it is good also because the Bible tells us that trials and difficulties refine us and prepare us for bigger and better things in the future. So it is good, and I believe that it will work good in the church. And I am expecting great things out of the body of Christ in Canada in the next coming years and decades. COVID-19 has given us the opportunity, this entire pandemic experience has given us the opportunity to slow down and to take stock. It's it's hard to do maintenance on an airplane in flight. Would you say amen to that? You you would say amen to that if you were on an airplane right now. It's it's hard to do substantial maintenance on an airplane in flight. And so God grounded us to give us the chance to think deeply about who we are and how we're doing. And so a, a lot of churches, this is sort of a double opportunity for you. I know you're celebrating an anniversary, Anniversary is a time for looking back and looking forward. It's a time for taking stock and also making plans and resolutions and commitments and covenants. That's good. But also, you understand that COVID has changed the world, right? Regardless of what you think about the virus, whether you think the virus is very serious or not very serious, whether you think the government responded appropriately or inappropriately, it doesn't matter. You understand that for the rest of your life, you'll be talking about pre-COVID and post-COVID, right? You understand that. And so now is the time, right here in this moment, this is is the day for us to be thinking about who we are and how we do as God's people in the world. And so there's really no better place for us to be this morning than right here in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is sometimes referred to as the beautiful tune. There's a a great uh, commercial right now on, uh, it's it's for... um, a luxury SUV, and uh, it, it, it shows a, a high school band trying to play a beautiful piece of classical music. Have you seen that? And the mom does up the windows in her well-made luxury SUV, and she can't hear a thing, right? And, and the, the, the point is that, uh, is that sometimes beautiful tunes are not necessarily played in beautiful ways, but the tune is still beautiful. The church has not always played this tune very well. But this is still the tune. This is still the sheet music. This is still the magic. This is the essence of what Christianity is. This is what Christianity sounds like. And we tune in every generation, in every opportunity, we tune ourselves against this music. Obviously, nobody played it like Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to to hear a piece of Mozart played by Mozart instead of your third grade uh, church choir, right? Obviously, nobody played it like Jesus, but it's the tune, it's the sound, it's it's who we're supposed to be, It's, it's what we're supposed to do, it's how we're supposed to serve. I'm sure if you've heard any teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, you know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't telling us how to get saved, rather he's telling us how saved people look, sound, and act in the world. The first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount Uh, give us the essential character of the Christian. And then here in verses 13 to 16, where we're going to drop in, it deals with the expected influence of the Christian in the world. Now, that's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? The expected influence. Let me ask you a question. Do you expect the church to have influence in the world in the coming decades? I wonder about that. I wonder if our kids do. You know, I've got, uh, I've got five kids. I go from 24 down to 10. we have got quite a range, and, and it's interesting because my children have grown up in a very different world than I grew up in. Uh, when I grew up in the world, I expected the church to have influence. I expected the church to be respected in the culture, because it, because it was. Um, all my friends, families—even if they weren't Christians—they sometimes pretended they were, just out of out of respect or out of momentum. But I tell you, I, my kids notice the difference between my sort of lens on the world and their lens on the world. They say all things all the time, like, "Oh, Dad, you could never get away with saying something like that in our generation." Oh, Dad, you could, you could never get away with doing something like that in, in our generation. I worry that our kids are growing up with the expectation that the church will have essentially no influence in the culture in their lifetime. And I wonder if some of us have landed there, too. Where sort of we think, you know, the best you can hope for, if the Lord tarries for another 20 or 30 years, the best we can do is survive. So we'll just hide out in our basement in a fortress of canned goods and wait for the second coming. And yet, when we read the Bible, it is very difficult to miss the assumption of influence in the world. There there is an expected influence in the world. that's what we're going to take a look at this morning hopefully you have your bibles open by now to matthew 5. hear now the words of jesus beginning at verse 13. you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I know you have this tradition, so I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in this very brief challenge here, Jesus makes use of two very common, in fact, I think you could argue the most common household metaphors to make this point point. and so in the few minutes that we have we'll unpack those metaphors and then talk about how to apply them in our rapidly changing world first of all let's make sure we're understanding what jesus is trying to communicate by use of these two metaphors salt and light as i mentioned probably were the the most common household metaphors in that time uh, jesus as a young boy no doubt would have seen his mother mary using salt and, and doing something with light, probably, you know, lighting lamps, lighting candles, every day of his earthly life. So these were well-used, well-understood metaphors, but let's make sure we understand them as well. Let's start with the metaphor of salt. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. Salt in the first century world was used primarily for preserving meat. Uh, of course, we use refrigerators now. It is amazing to think of how much refrigeration technology has changed just in one lifetime. Uh, in my lifetime, when I was a little boy, I remember my, um, you would, this would mean nothing to you, but there, there used to be a, a little place uh, called Ore Lake. Well, it's still there, obviously. Uh, if not, modern technology has erased Ore Lake from the Canadian Shield. Anyway, uh, there was this uh, little place called Ore Lake. And my grandparents had, who lived in, really actually had a had a cottage, in Or Lake, and uh, we I remember going there as a little boy, and they and that cottage had had an ice box, so I literally because what happened is my, my grandparents had bought a refrigerator, and so they took the old ice box and they put it in the cottage. That's what you did, back in the day before cottages were were more beautiful than all our houses. Um, But so I remember in my lifetime, and I'm not that old. I'm I'm 48 years old. In my lifetime, I remember iceboxes. Anybody else ever ever actually have physical contact with an icebox? Yeah. How about that? And now we've got refrigerators. Well, of course, in a previous generation, you know, there was a time when icebox was a new technology, if you can believe that. Back in the day, way back in the day, if you wanted meat to last more than a few hours in a hot climate, then you used salt. You packed it. You cured it. In salt. So by telling his disciples that they're the salt of the earth, Jesus is saying that part of their job is to restrain the world in its headlong plunge into corruption. The metaphor assumes two things. It assumes, first of all, a continuing fall away from God and into death and ruin. And it assumes that Christians, in some sense, have been rescued out of that. That the, that the world is, is kind of on this. We think of the fall sometimes as a one-time event, and, and it was, but it's also a continuing event, right? If you've read Romans 1, don't you get this sense that the whole of human history is like a slinky going down a set of stairs, right? And it's just every generation, it gets worse and worse and worse until you hit the bottom, and the bottom is judgment, right? That's, that's Romans 1. And so the assumption in this metaphor is that, is that the world would actually fall further and further and further and faster and faster and faster away from God if not for the presence of Christians in the world. So part of our job is to arrest that decay and decline, to restrain it. We can't stop it completely, but part of our job is, is to slow it down. And then there's a second nuance to this metaphor. In the book of Job, uh, for example, Job says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? And, and so salt also, in addition to being a preservative, was added flavor. And Jesus is saying that to be his disciple is to make the world better, to add something, add something good, add something beautiful, add something fragrant, okay? So salt makes things better. And salt fights off decay. That's our first metaphor. What about light? What does Jesus mean when he says, you are the light of the world? Now, that's a really interesting one because, of course, Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12, said that he was the light of the world. Remember that? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we sang about that this morning. And I'm assuming we picked that song because you saw the message title, which is Salt and Light. Which is interesting, because we always, and this is good, so I'm not criticizing, it's good, we always sing about how Jesus is the light of the world. We always feel a little weird about, can you imagine, would you have sung a song that said, we are the light of the world, you know? Here we have come, here we are. We, I can't remember the tune now. Someone help me out. We are the light of the world. Can you, would you sing that song? That was terrible. My wife always tells me not to sing in messages. I don't know why I don't listen to her advice. But would you have sung that song this morning? Would you feel comfortable? When I was a kid, we used to sing Shine, Jesus Shine. I could sing that one good for you. But would you sing that we shine? That We, we don't feel comfortable with that. Maybe that's self-awareness maybe that's humility or maybe it's us not taking our commission seriously jesus says that he is the light of the world but he also says that we are the light of the world it's both jesus is like the sun we are like the moon and we are to have an influence of illumination and brightness in so far as we are reflecting his nature and character into the darkness Now we wanna notice that Jesus equates the light that we shine specifically with our good works. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So shining your light reflects or or relates to living a good life, doing good works, exhibiting good Christian behavior in the world. The assumption in the Bible seems to be that if we live a good Christian life, if we reflect the character and nature of Jesus, then that is going to be attractive in some sense to our friends and neighbors, our loved ones. They're going to draw near. They're going to ask questions. And out of that dynamic, we should have opportunity to speak of the glory of God in Christ. The Apostle Peter certainly seems to operate under that assumption. In 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, I'm sure you know this passage. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So you can hear the working assumption there. The working assumption is that if, you, if you're living a good life, if you are distinctive and in interesting and useful in compelling ways, then people are going to draw near. They're going to ask you questions and you're going to have the opportunity to unfold the glory of the gospel in the person and work of Christ. They're going to come to you and ask questions. How come come you and Sally are still married after all these years, and how come you still seem to be so much in love? How come you're still driving that old beater? Surely you could afford a, a newer car than that. How come you don't join in when everyone at work is bashing the prime minister? I know that you don't. Agree with all of his policies. See, if you live differently than the cultural norms, then people are going to ask questions. You're going to have opportunities. I remember, it's, you read things in the Bible, and of course you believe them because you're a Christian, but I remember the first experience of this in my life. A number of years ago, a friend of mine from high school called me up out of the blue, hadn't spoken to him in years. And, uh, you know, I, hello we talked for a few minutes what are you up to Oh, great and I said so you know I'm what motivated your call he said well I gotta tell you my marriage is in trouble I think my wife's gonna leave me he says the truth is you're the only friend from high school I know who's still married to his wife and still loves his wife what gives and we talked for a couple hours and that conversation eventually led to him making a profession of faith at a Promise Keepers event. Just, I tell that story simply because that's, that is literally how it's supposed to work. It's not, it's not rocket science. That was the way they did it in the early Christian church. They lived openly as Jesus' followers in a broken and fallen world. They shone their light, and people noticed and drew near. They were, they were different Rodney Stark, I don't know if you've ever read any of Rodney Stark's uh, books, The Triumph of Christianity, uh, is is a fabulous book. Rodney Stark's not a believer. Uh, He he actually has described himself as incapable of belief, which I think is very sad. Uh, But he is, as a sociologist and a historian, he's very interested in the rapid rise and triumph of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And so he studied that. That was his area of interest. And you know what he said? He said, you know, uh, there, were, there were two great plagues that, well, that's interesting. There were two great plagues that really expedited a, a process that was already underway. But he said, basically, what undermined the trust of the Roman people in their own pagan system and what caused them to look with such favor upon Christianity was, was basically the Christian care for the sick and the poor. During the plagues, when every Roman with money was running as fast as he could out of the major cities and leaving the poor to die. Christians from the country were actually clogging the roads, marching into the city to care for the sick and the dying. Infanticide, which was widespread in the Roman Empire, particularly the late generations of the Roman Empire, where where people would expose their babies, particularly their female babies. They only wanted uh, male babies who could contribute to the household income and the strength of the family, the Christian church would go around and collect up all those female babies and raise them. By the way, interesting, I'm not advocating this as an evangelism strategy, but it got to the point in the late Roman Empire where there were so few Roman women that pagan Roman men had to go to the church and ask permission to marry one of these ladies because they were the only ones available, and the church said, well, sure, you take catechism class and get baptized, we'd be happy to set up a date. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're onto something there. There was a a pagan emperor named Julian, and Julian actually wanted uh, to preserve paganism in the empire. So he wrote to one of his friends, who was a high-ranking pagan priest, and he said, you guys got to pick up your game. He said, "The, the Christians are killing you. He said, they not only care for their own poor, they care for our poor. And so Christianity actually transformed paganism, which became a poor copy of Christianity. The point is they they just, just lived out the Jesus life in a rotten, individualistic, selfish, narcissistic world. People noticed. All kinds of people noticed. D.A. Carson says here: the righteousness of the life you live will attract attention, even if that attention regularly takes the form of opposition. Can I tell you something? You've noticed, I'm sure, that the gap, the difference between the culture and the church, the Christian life, when it's lived out properly, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every generation. I remember asking my, my mother, who grew up in the 50s, I said, was the Christian sexual ethic pretty common in, in your high school? And my mother did not, was not a Christian. She didn't become a Christian until her 30s. And she said, Oh, yes. I mean, there were you know she was there were, there were a few young ladies and a few young men who were doing crazy stuff, but but by and large, Every, everybody was doing the same thing whether they were Christians or not. And she said, and the truth is we would all have said we were Christians anyway. She said, I didn't know that I wasn't. Meaning the point is Christ, the Christian values and worldly values overlapped so thoroughly in my mom's generation in Canada that people weren't even sure who was who. And you know that's not the case now, right? Every, every generation now, the, the gap gets Bigger. And in our generation now, all of a sudden, the the gap is extraordinarily noticeable. And so what that means actually, brothers and sisters, is that things are going to get significantly better and worse for us in the coming generation, in the next decades. It's going to get easier for us to evangelize, but we're also going to attract more hostility. All right, so light attracts, whether it attracts people for evangelism or people for conflict and hostility, that's light attracts. And then also light guides. You know this. A a couple months ago, just before we turned, or it was a month and a half ago, before we turned the clocks uh, forward, it was, it was getting so dark early. You remember that? And uh, I remember the way our church is set up. My office is over there, and the front is over there. And so uh, I was the last person in the office in the, in the church because uh, I was taping an interview. And uh, so I, I finished the interview, and I walked out, and it was, it was 630 or so, and it was pitch black in there. There was nobody else in the church. The place was, was pitch black. And uh, so I, I was sort of stumbling like a blindfolded man through a minefield, and, and I think I hit every chair in the first five rows uh, that I encountered, and then I did what every, every civilized person in our generation would do. I took out my cell phone, and I used, used my little cell phone light to make my way safely through the dark and out the front door, right? In, in our time and generation, you're never without light. You carry it around in your pocket. But of course, it wasn't that way in the days of Jesus. In those days, you had to prepare in advance for the coming of darkness, and so Jesus would have seen his mother Mary every, every day as the sun began to set, going through the house lighting lamps. That little bit of cultural background is important for us. Jesus says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Mary didn't light a light and then shove it under a bed or put it under a basket. She, she lit it on some high stand so that everyone in the house could benefit, so that Joseph could sharpen his tools, so that Mary could do some sewing, so that Jesus and his brothers and sisters could uh, work on their letters or play a game or, or do whatever they were doing. That's what light is for. It guides people. It illuminates the darkness. It makes life livable for people in a dark and dangerous world. So light attracts and light guides Putting that all together then, we would say by using these overlapping metaphors, Jesus is saying that Christians, he's saying this to his disciples, his disciples and followers are supposed to do four things. Preserve the world from moral and spiritual decay, provide flavor and goodness in an otherwise bland and lifeless context. Attract both friends and enemies close enough to have a conversation and guide Lost and stumbling people trying to make their way in the world. That's the job. That's the blueprint. That's how we're supposed to exercise influence as the people of Christ in the world. So how do we do that? It's great to understand things, isn't it? It's the glory of kings to understand things. It's wonderful to understand the Bible. But how do we actually put this into practice? What, what commitments do we need to make to ensure that the notes on the sheet music actually become the sound produced by the church as it lives and moves in the world that's the question what do these metaphors require of us first thing that these metaphors seem to require is for the church to maintain contact with the culture right salt doesn't work in a shaker it's got to be in contact with the meat light doesn't work under a basket it's got to be up on a stand. It's got to be meeting the darkness. These metaphors are encouraging the people of Jesus Christ to remain in close contact with the people of the world. And that's always been a challenge for us. And I'll tell you this, it's going to be a much greater challenge for us in the years and decades ahead. Can we be honest for a second? It's not as fun making contact with the culture as it, as it was a decade ago or two decades ago. Have you noticed that? Is it just me, or does it feel like the culture has gone completely nuts in, in the last couple of years? Is that just me? It's, it's, it's hard to find a TV show you can watch as a family now, isn't it? And even if you do find one, what are you going to do but all the commercials? The commercials are the worst part. It, so much has changed in the last 20 years. So much has changed in the last two years. The, this, the pandemic was a change accelerator in the culture. Ross Duthat, who's a, a columnist with the New York Times, wrote a really interesting article early on in the pandemic. It would have been interesting what he had written after two years. He wrote this, I think, one or two or three months into the pandemic. He wrote this in 2020. But it was called Waking Up in 2030. And what he was saying is that the suspended time and the accelerated exposure to social media that characterized the lockdowns in the early part of the pandemic actually have sped up cultural history so that the changes we expected in the culture in 2030 have actually been realized in a period of only months. Do you you feel that? Did you experience that over COVID? right? I mean, you drive a bunch of people down into the basement and and tell them that they can't do anything but watch the internet for 16 hours a day, and the world is going to change and not for the better, right? And that's what happened. The world has changed. Things that we saw a decade out, two decades out, we're living there Now, how many of you folks expected to live out your lives and enjoy a nice, peaceful retirement and then die and be received into glory before the bad times came for the Church of Jesus Christ? We were all living that dream, right? But now you know the bad times are here, aren't they? The bad times are upon us. Here in Canada, the smooth, swift, essentially unopposed passage of bill c4 really drove that reality home for us all of a sudden we understand that what we believe is is not just odd to our friends and neighbors it is considered wicked evil and illegal it's a whole new world it's a world we thought was 10 or 20 or 30 years out but here it is now and we got to deal with it so what are we going to do are we gonna run and hide are we gonna stop having gospel conversations with friends and neighbors are we gonna here's one are we gonna shut down the biblical counseling ministries in our church are we gonna fire the youth pastor you know it's the youth pastor who's gonna get us sued, isn't it right because youth pastors gonna be all talking about sex from the Bible to a bunch of teenagers and someone's parents are gonna get offended and we're all gonna get sued you know that So what do we do? We fire the youth pastor? Who's the youth pastor here? Where is he? We fire the youth pastor? Here's one. Do we we take our sermons and, and services offline? Do we turn the lights off? That's what I'm asking. Do we turn the lights off? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew a thing or two about the danger of shining your light in a darkening world, said this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. There is no following Jesus that does not involve contact with the world. So let me ask you again, are you going to turn the lights off? Or are you going to recommit in a post-COVID world to both personal and public contact with the culture? That's the issue. Both sides of that are important. Over the course of COVID, we've been forced out of the personal and into the public realm of contact. Meaning we haven't been having friends and neighbors over for dinner. We've just been yelling at them over Twitter. How's that working out? Right? We need to adjust that balance. We need to overcome our fear of personal engagement. We need to re-engage with the ministries of hospitality and neighborhood outreach. Listen, the next 12 months in the ministry of the church need to be the most intensely personal months in the history of Christianity in Canada. Do you understand that? We need to go all in Again, I understand that people are nervous about personal interaction right now. I understand that. But they are also starved for it, and they are feeling the effects of not having it. So we need to fire up those small groups, those social events, those barbecues, those sports leagues. We need to go all in on VBS. Can you say amen to that as a concept? I'm not making policy. Just stating what I hope is the obvious. Now, the next thing I'm going to say is maybe not as obvious, and it's probably a much harder sell. We can't abandon the internet. We, yes, we need to re-engage on the personal side, but we, we can't abandon the, that public side. The, and the internet is an important part of the public square. Now, listen, I understand that most mature Christians, I would argue, the more mature you are as a believer, the more sick you are of the internet after two years of covid and yet. And yet we can't abandon that. Now listen, we need to be smarter and we need to be more strategic and more selective in our use of the internet, but we absolutely have to stay in the game. For better or worse, the internet is an important aspect of the public square. It is the modern agora. It is the marketplace. It is the Roman road of our generation. Bible readers, I'm sure you understand that in the New Testament era, it was the technology of Roman roads that great, humanly speaking, that greatly facilitated the movement of the gospel into unreached areas. You could walk from Pamphylia to Cilicia. You could walk from Philippi to Corinth. That was an incredible technological breakthrough, and the church made full use of it. The Apostle Paul made use of that technology to publish the gospel in the public square, and so must we. For all its faults, the Internet is an important tool. We need to use it, and those who use it well will win. Glory for God and good for the nations. Martin Luther understood that. In the Protestant Reformation, there's a great book I read at the early part of this pandemic called Brand Luther, well worth your time. One of the the, the reasons the Protestant Reformation was so successful is because Martin Luther made the decision to make use of the new technology of the printing press to bring the gospel, to bring the Bible, to bring Christian theology to the masses. Up until that point, books were incredibly expensive to print, scholars wrote in Latin, and so books were being produced, The, the gospel was being discussed in languages people didn't understand and was written in books they could not purchase. And so Luther bypassed that, and he started printing small tracts, paper tracts, in German. And for many people in Europe, it was the first thing they ever read. And he printed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, such that by the end of the Protestant Reformation, the average cobbler or farmer had read more Bible in his lifetime than in any previous lifetime, probably back to the time of the early church. Luther understood that. Listen, for all its faults, the Internet is an important tool we need to make use of. When borders are closed to missionaries, the Internet will still be open. When church doors are closed, the Internet will still be open. You know, this pandemic, all of us were upset. I was with you. I was upset. We were all upset when this pandemic forced us to go online for stretches of time, weren't we? And and yet maybe in the providence of the Lord, the Lord was teaching us all how to use technologies that will be absolutely critical to the last phase of global mission in Christian history. You should talk to people on your tech team. Early on in the pandemic, because we had a fairly developed tech team and we had some video technology that other churches didn't have, we noticed that there was a massive spike in in the number of people engaging with our services. And then about a year in, it had fallen somewhat, still more people than it had ever attended physically. But you know what that was? In the first part of the pandemic, every small church in North America was just telling their people to to watch the services from a larger church in the neighborhood. I'm sure that happened here at West Highland. A year into the pandemic, churches of 25 had figured out how to broadcast services. Do you understand that? We went from... 20% of churches in North America knowing how to use this technology to 95% of churches in North America knowing how to use this technology because of this pandemic. Can you thank God for that? You should thank God. And I'll tell you what, Christians in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran and North Korea and Russia are thanking God for that. Your hardship may mean eternal life for them. Can you thank God for that? And so we got to use this technology. And we got to be smarter, of course. There are places we shouldn't go. There are arguments we don't need to have. But we got to use the technology. To be a Christian is to build and maintain contact with the people of the world. And then secondly, and quickly here, the metaphors used by Jesus require also the church to maintain her distinctive beliefs and practices. Light is good because it's distinct from the dark. Salt is good because it's distinct from the taste of putrid and decaying meat. That's the essence of the symbolism. That's the imperative of the metaphor. Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Maybe that is some providence in our snowstorm today. Canadians better than anybody know what salt adulterated tastes like because every time you splash your feet, you get a little bit of it in your mouth, don't you? Right? If you're not sure about this, I'll drive my car fast by you through the parking lot on the way out. And you can, you can get a good taste of this metaphor, right? Because in Ontario, for whatever reason, maybe it's just they hate our cars, I don't know. But uh, that's what they put on the roads, salt adulterated with sand, which is good for nothing. You try cooking with that, not so good, right? The only thing it's good for is to be trampled on our feet and tires. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, if, if you allow your beliefs and your practices to be adulterated by the beliefs and practices of the world, you're good for nothing, except maybe to be trampled underfoot, which is interesting. You know, when I started in ministry, I started in 1994, September of 1994, and if anybody was in ministry or anybody was active in the church in those times, you know that what was all the rage in the early and mid-90s was what we called seeker church at the time, and the whole essence of Secret Church was trying to narrow the gap between the church and the culture, right? So we needed to... Now, listen, I will tell you this. Some of, of what people found weird about the church was just unhelpfully weird, right? Like there's good weird and bad weird. And if you hang around for Christians long enough, you'll meet a little bit of both, right? Uh, and so, so there was some unhelpful weird in the church in the 90s that we, needed, we did need to deal with. Why were we still reading... The Bible in Elizabethan, Elis- Elisab- it's even hard to say Elizabethan English, right? Why were we still reading the Bible in King James English? Nobody had talked like that in, in like seven generations. And the music who was it that decided that 18th century European chamber music was the only appropriate way to worship the Lord? That would have been news to King David, I am sure, right? And so some of that actually did have to be processed because it was not gospel distinctive it was just that we had enshrined 1950 as the ideal era in the history of the church who made that decision But the but the point is we we actually we had a synapse failure in the 90s and when we thought that evangelism would be better if we could narrow the gap between the culture and the church when in fact, the gap is often good for the gospel, if it's, if it's the right gap, right? If, if, the, if the distinctives are, are gospel distinctives, are Jesus distinctives, if that's the case, then the gap is going to be good for the gospel. I'll tell you this. The gap is gonna be good for the gospel in the coming generation. If if we are still preaching and proclaiming a sovereign God in a culture that believes man is the measure of all things, that gap's gonna be good for the gospel. Big God is gonna be very attractive in our culture. If the church is still proclaiming belief in a bloody cross in a world that doesn't see the significance of sin, that gap is going to be good for the gospel. If the church is still preaching the biblical model of marriage in a world where birth rates are cratering now and loneliness is being declared a public health crisis, that gap is going to be good for the gospel. If the church is still preaching human nature, In a world that is encouraging nine-year-olds to choose their own gender, and the medical establishment is only too happy to turn a momentary emotion into a permanent physiological reality, the consequences of which are past finding out, that gap is going to be good for the gospel. And if the church remains committed to essential Christian character, you know, I told you you'll get more out of this message if your Bible is open. Because it is not by accident that Jesus speaks about influence after he speaks about character. That's not subtle at all, is it? What Jesus is saying there is that we will have no influence in the world if we do not foster and nurture distinctive character in the church. Two go hand in hand, as they always have done, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on the Sermon on the Mount said here, if you read the history of the church, you will find it has always been when men and women have taken this sermon seriously and faced themselves in the light of it, the true revival has come. Do you want true revival? Do Do you want true revival in the country of Canada? Do you want to see men, women, boys and girls coming out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. That's not a rhetorical question. Do you want that? Then take this sermon seriously. Take the sermon on the mount seriously. Take the words of Jesus seriously. Be distinctive and be connected. That's it. It's not rocket science. You know, sometimes I feel like we spend so much energy on vision casting and strategic planning. And listen, I do those things too. I do vision casting and strategic planning. But I feel like sometimes we do those things because we know we're not prepared to do this thing. So let's do vision casting. Let's do strategic planning. But let's do those things on the assumption of and the commitment to the distinctiveness and connectedness of God's people. That's how Christians exercised influence 2,000 years ago in the early church. That's how they did it 500 years ago in the time of the Reformation. That's how good churches were doing it three years ago before COVID-19. And that's how we'll do it again in the world on the other side. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we we always delight in going back to the Sermon on the Mount. It does shame our shabbiness. It, It does rebuke our pragmatism. It does refocus us on essential things. But Lord, it also drives us to our knees and causes us to ask in our hearts, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, not me. I'm sure... Many people here are saying, not me. And so, Lord, we ask for grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit. Lord, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That is how the the house of God, that is how the light of God is relit in every generation, as it was in the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua, as it was in the days of the early church, as it was in the days of the Reformation. Lord, may it be so again in our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Well, what Pastor Paul touched on this morning is actually going to be a part of this panel discussion that we're having this evening in the fellowship hall downstairs at 6. One of his points was that we need to maintain distinctive beliefs And these beliefs are being eroded today. And in the broader Baptist family within our nation, there are churches that are beginning to abandon these beliefs and to accommodate the culture in so many ways. And so these are the things we want to talk about tonight. So I trust you will come and join us here at 6. If you come early at 5.30, you'll be able to get a coffee or a tea. There'll be a fellowship time downstairs. And then we'll engage in this panel with Dr. Michael Hagen and Pastor Paul Carter. I look forward to seeing you here tonight. And now may God the Holy Spirit enable, equip, and empower us all to be salt in this world and to let our light shine for the glory of Christ. Amen.